0: Father God, we thank you that you are a God who communicates with us, uh, your people. We thank you for uh, the words in uh, your scriptures, and we thank you for people like Peter who have applied themselves to understanding it. We pray that you'll prepare our hearts to hear from you this morning and give Peter a clear mind and clear words as he speaks to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the reading this morning is from uh, Luke chapter 9 verses 51 to 62 you'll find it on page 4 of uh, the little uh, pew sheets uh, and I'm going to read it from um, from the Bible as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem and he sent messages on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God.
1: Uh, Last Monday I went to see Bob Dylan uh, for the sixth time in my life. That's a lot of times. Twenty years ago was the first time. And uh, he was in fine form, the Bobster. And um, one of the songs he didn't sing is his most famous song. Uh, Some have ranked it as the greatest rock and roll song of all time. And that is the song Like a Rolling Stone. The song Like a Rolling Stone is about um, a woman who he refers to as Miss Lonely. And uh, she grew up in privilege and, um, you know, with wealth and had all the finest schools and um, fashionable clothes and enjoyed high price, high-placed friends, and she was um, never really that generous to people. Um, so, you know, there's a line, she throws the bums a dime, you know, just kind of casually walks past them. But now, later in life, so the song goes, she ha- her circumstances have changed, and she um, is no longer in the wealthy status that she, she once was. Uh, and she, it appears that she has no meaningful... Um, kind of experiences to, to define her character she's, she's sort of uh, uh, she's become this lost person because she's lost her wealth that's, that's where she def- how she defined herself so, so the, 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 lo- the, lo- the lines of the song says now you don't talk so loud now you don't seem so proud about having to be scrounging for your ne- next meal how does it feel? how does it feel to be on your own? with no direction home, like a complete unknown, like a rolling stone. And um, the Bob aficionados, of which there are many, and they were were all there last Monday, many of them um, have speculated who the woman is, but um, eventually, like, a, a few decades into his career, he's been going for about 50 years, he kind of admitted that a lot of the songs are about himself and that in some ways, you know, life on the road... makes him him feel like a bit of a person who has no fixed address and no um, kind of relationships that are that solid and that he feels like a rolling stone. In some ways, I actually think Bob Dylan is quite... um, Quite committed and quite consistent and reliable because he's doing exactly the same thing now that he was doing 50 years ago. Every 10 years he changes style, and uh, but he keeps he's put out 55 albums. You know, like there's a lot of stuff out there. He, he's he's really um, he's prolific. Um, how he is with his six children, I'm not so sure. There is a story that um, about 10 years ago. He used to just spontaneously appear at his grandson's kindergarten and sing songs for the kids. And the kids had no idea who this funny old man was, you know, anyway. Today, we are talking about steadfastness. The opposite of what Rolling Rollingstone is about. As one of the unfashionable Christian virtues. And um, as Anthony pointed out, the front cover of our booklet, we have Uluru in Central Australia. I thought of this as a great symbol of of steadfastness it's a geological symbol of of steadfastness in a way it's a solid sandstone rock there for millions of years standing in the same spot but also because it makes me think of the steadfastness of aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people uh, a people that are committed to place and to each other more than anything else What actually is steadfastness? The ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle had kind of three ideas that he used to kind of think about steadfastness. First of all, it's the idea of integrity within the self. So who I am to you is who I am in private, in every context. Secondly, he thought it's a little bit about time, so... Steadfastness is about integrity over time. So who you are today um, will be who you are in months from now. Obviously, you can change, you can learn new things and you can develop and get older, but the core of who you are, the promises you make, you will keep. You will be trustworthy. And the third thing that he thought about was friendship. So he says that um, steadfastness requires other people you need to be honest and faithful to other people, to the promises um, that you make to other people, and they need, you need them to keep you accountable to that. And the opposite of, of steadfast, I'm gonna, there's lots of words for it if you look up the antonym to steadfast in google.com, but it doesn't have the word that is my favourite, which is flaky. I love that word, flaky. A flaky person is someone you cannot rely on. You organise to meet them for coffee, and they forget. They're just a no-show, or they text you at the last minute saying, sorry, I slept in this morning, and I'm not going to make it, and there you are standing in the cold. Um, uh, Paul Davies, who who many of you know, he was was part of our church, and I, we talk about um, this phrase, the sorry man, or the sorry man, the sorry man... And it's a thing that you get if you ever play, if you're ever fortunate enough to play in a band and you try and organise a rehearsal and the person says, I've put it in my diary. And then the day before, um, you get a text, sorry, man, I can't make it. I forgot I had my mum's birthday party to go to. No, you're not sorry. You're just disorganised. You forgot. You You don't have a diary. You are flaky. And anyone who has led a team ministry in church... Or being a community group leader knows what I'm talking about. It gets to be 30 minutes before the group is about to start. You're rushing around, cleaning, rushing around your house, cleaning up the house, and you're trying to put the kids to bed. That's well, that's what it's like in our house. And then you get the last minute text message, you know, 10 minutes before sorry, I won't be able to come tonight. I'm feeling a bit tired. And you just want to scream. You're busy you're tired, you still expect the community to be there for you too, can be a source of discouragement, can't it, when we're like this, when we're not steadfast to each other. It can lead to shallow relationships. Worse than that, a person who really lacks steadfastness gives up on friendships easily. Perhaps there's been a disagreement, and so they, instead of dealing with the issue... They lack steadfastness and so they just walk away from the friendship. Or think about family. You, you, you're kind of born into some of our relationships. You don't have control over who your mum and dad are or who your brother or sister are. But when the time of testing arrives, when they really need you, maybe they get sick or something, you're not there for them. You're nowhere to be found. Steadfastness will give you more depth. Um, being like a pinball in a pinball machine bouncing around, um, f- speed in life, it kind of that's a, the opposite image to Uluru, isn't it? And that leads to shallowness. Will you care for your parents when the time comes? Will you be there for your friends when they need you? Now we live in a period where there is a complete lack of constancy in politics. You know, we famously had that period when we had five prime ministers in like six years or something. And many politicians are not even steadfast within themselves. So they might do an interview on, um, you know, 7:30 with Lee Sales, and then the next day, announce some completely different policy. And some people, you know, that's what Donald Trump is famous for. He texts one thing, says one thing to Putin, and then another thing to, you know, his chief of staff, and who knows what he thinks. And there's rapid change in the media cycle. The economy is measured on a minute-by-minute basis. Um, there is tweets flying through your phone right now and Instagram updates and social media updates. And so this all just creates a sense of instability. And there is this paradox we have, which is that the lack of steadfastness in this world gives us a longing for steadfastness in other people, a longing for people and places whom we can rely on, a longing for church community of people who, can, who we can trust and who can be there for us. And the paradox is, while we long for that, in other people, we find it difficult. Um, it doesn't come naturally for ourselves. And that's why it's kind of unfashionable. Walid Ali said in um, the, the podcast, which I'm basing this sermon series on, which is um, uh, the, uh, his show The Minefield on ABC Radio National, when he talked about steadfastness, he said this... He said, choice has become in some ways the cardinal virtue of our age, choice. And maybe even the primary form of moral reasoning that we have left in an age that has almost become post-moral in the way that we talk. We talk about freedom. We talk about individuality. We talk about choice. We we talk about not harming others. And Scott Stevens said on on the show, he's the other guy on the show, that we live in an age where we fetishize choice and self-determination. We want to maintain the capacity to set our own course. We want to keep the right to make promises and break promises. So paradoxically, steadfastness we desire in other people, but we resist ourselves. Now, when we think about steadfastness as a Christian virtue specifically, Um, we get a bit more precise and we think not just about steadfastness to people and place but steadfastness to God steadfastness to his word steadfastly committed to the promises he has made to us steadfast in our hope for eternity as the proverb says that we read out together this is the path of the righteous, which is like the morning sun, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. The more you make your life focused on God and his word, looking straight ahead, not turning to the left or the right, but just focusing on him, the brighter and clearer the day becomes. The more you will flourish in your life. The Apostle Paul tells us to pursue steadfastness in 1 Timothy 6.11 and that the characteristic of the mature Christian, this is in Titus, is that they are sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness. In fact, steadfastness is given such prominence in the New Testament it made me think, it's interesting that it's huge there but not in our own culture, it's not a word we use much, is it? not a concept we talk about much in the modern church paul said that he boasted about the steadfastness of the christians in thessalonica who kept their faith in the face of persecution in jesus letters to the church in ephesus thyatira and philadelphia that are recorded in john's vision in the book of revelation jesus says that he knows about their three churches their steadfastness the endurance he notices its significance to him. He's saying to them, "Well done for staying committed and strong in your faith in the long haul, despite all the the false teachers you've had and the persecutions you've been facing." So I don't know about you, but if Jesus takes the time to make that point in a letter, that he notices a church's steadfastness and the Christian steadfastness, then he thinks it's pretty important. So I want to take that seriously for myself. So, using these two passages from Proverbs four and Luke nine, I I want to say three things about steadfastness. Firstly, that it requires a complete focus on God and His Word, on God's Word. Complete focus on God's Word. Secondly, that um, steadfast Christian steadfastness has the capacity to change, to respond to change. And thirdly, Christian um, virtue is strengthened by suffering. Christian Virtue is, uh, requires a complete focus on God's word and has the capacity to respond to change and is strengthened by suffering. So let's look at this first idea, requiring a complete focus on God's word. To develop steadfastness with God, to develop an unwavering commitment to him through the good times and the hard times is to focus all of your attention on his word according to the Proverbs we just read. Notice the references to the different, part, different parts of the body that the Proverbs passage has, including those parts of the body that have to do with perception, sight, and hearing. There's a metaphorical kind of image that's being built here about staying on wisdom's path. We are to turn our ears to God's word, in verse 20. We're not to let them out of our sight, in verse 21, because it is God's word that gives us life and health to our body, and it would change us on the inside, ontologically, using a big philosophical word. It will actually change who we are, God's word, in verse 22. Uh, The Proverbs says we're to guard our heart. We should not fill our mind on things that are corrupt, dark or evil, it says in verse twenty-three. This means not being perverted in our speech or in what we say with our lips. Lips says another body part in verse twenty-four. Um, that it's more clear in the Hebrew that all those body images. And then verse twenty six, give careful thought to the path of your feet, another body part, and be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. Uh, Jesus makes a very similar point in the parable of the sower where he makes a comparison between people who are spiritually receptive and people who are not spiritually receptive to to the the gospel being like soil that's receptive to growth and soil that's not receptive to growth. And he says that um, the good soil are like those people who hear the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. And that word patience there is the same word for steadfast in the Greek. So this, this is a kind of a description of a person who has the virtue of steadfastness. They are pursuing the wise life by focusing all of their attention, all of their body parts, um, from the eyes to the ears to the feet to the heart to everything, to follow the path of God's wisdom. The promise is that, you, is that you, as you wholeheartedly do this, your character will be reshaped and this is not simply so this is not simply an intellectual effort it's not you learn more and you learn more for the sake of learning but that you change on the inside and the wise teacher in proverbs who's speaking to the younger person the younger student of wisdom understands that you will be tempted to look away to abandon his commitment You will want to waver. You will want to look to the right or the left at the distractions in life. But you must avoid all of these distractions, says the the wise teacher. I recently heard one pastor um, claim that in his opinion, the greatest threat, spiritual threat that Christians face is the smartphone. And the reason why is because smartphones encourage distraction. <laughs> they create distracted people. You see it in the cafes, the people just looking at their phones, the kids just playing on their, on their mum and dad's phones and not engaging with each other. They make it harder for us to sit still, to meditate, to be present. Smartphones breed flakiness. Um just a few days ago there was a newspaper in the uh, article in the newspaper and the Guardian saying that in Germany right now lifeguards have been doing a bit of a campaign because there's been an increase in the drownings of children in swimming pools because their parents are staring at their phones and not paying attention to their kids and and this is really terrible um, I'll, I'll quote the the, the German Lifeguard Association person said, In the past, parents and grandparents spent more time with their children in the swimming pool, but increasing numbers of parents are fixated by their smartphones and are not paying attention to their children. It's sad that parents behave so neglectfully these days. We are just distracted people, and it, maybe it is the case that our technology is the, <laughs> the thing that's making it worse. And this is affecting us spiritually. But we can begin to grow in steadfastness by perhaps working out what are those things in our lives that are making us distracted, removing the unnecessary major distractions in our lives, replacing it with increased prayer and meditation. Perhaps you could commit to an increased amount of spiritual disciplines. That is the antidote to the spiritually distracted flaky Christian, increased spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines such as Bible reading, prayer, meditation and fasting are all designed to use our whole body, like the proverb says, to focus on God and his wisdom. And the idea is that the more we do these spiritual disciplines, the more we stay focused and unwavering in our commitment to God and his word. And you might need to actively force yourself to do this because there are so many things competing for our time. And yesterday, this is what the women were doing at the women's prayer retreat. They were forcing it into their calendar, I'm going to devote some hours on my Saturday to focusing on God and his word. And as a result, little bit by little bit, bit, they're cultivating the virtue of steadfastness. You might be thinking, how are, are the spiritual disciplines, which I mainly do privately, how are they related to being steadfast because isn't steadfast didn't aristotle make this point that steadfastness is about our relationships to other people and commitment to other people well yes steadfastness is about you and your relationships with other people and with god and even the development of private character as a christian about our secret prayer life and our fasting and our spiritual disciplines and our acts of good works that are not seen by anyone all these we do in relationship to a community and to God. So it does affect our relationships. And in fact, God in the Bible makes this huge point that he does not care if you're spending all your life um, doing these religious sacrifices to him and then treating those in your community uh, unjustly. He says, I don't care about your sacrifices if you're treating the poor unjustly. So, so the virtue is only complete, the, the private spiritual disciplines and the prayer and the Bible reading and fasting in relationship to community and love and, and the, broader, the other virtues that are, that are involved in being a Christian. And if you think about it, steadfastness and relationships and spiritual disciplines, they intersect in the Christian life in the way that we help each other. My father-in-law, Neville, he and his best friend became a Christian. Became Well, they took their faith really seriously in the 1950s at school, in a school Christian lunchtime group at Scotch College. And he, and then they went on to both do sociology at La Trobe Uni, and, and Neville's friend David became his supervisor. And so they did a lot of similar things. Um, and Neville went on to have a family and, and kids and be actively involved in the church. But David um, happily stayed a single man and also didn't get involved in in a local church. Um, And um, despite this, Neville and David started meeting together monthly um, to just read the Bible together. And when I started dating Joe 20 years ago, they were doing it, and they're still doing it to this day, And I think they'd been doing it for decades before I'd met Joe too. Like about 40 years. Every month meeting, it's usually starting about 9pm at night because David's really committed to the basketball world and he's an administrator in basketball. They get together, they have this Bible study month after month, 40 years or so. See how steadfastness and spiritual disciplines help each other. They make for stronger community. And it's inspiring Another way we can think about steadfastness in our spiritual disciplines is our ability to stick at things for ourselves. So I heard about this example of, you know, it's common for us when we're reading the Bible to get to a passage that's a bit tricky and to skim over it and go to the next chapter or the next passage. But part of cultivating a full-body focus on God and his word is to wrestle with the difficult passages it might mean rereading passages day after day, or talking to another friend who knows a bit more about them, or buying a book. So, what have we been saying? Firstly, we've been saying that cultivating the Christian virtue of steadfastness requires a complete focus on God's word. Secondly, it has a capacity to change, to respond to change. One of the mistakes we make is that steadfastness um, is about being closed minded. That you form your opinion, you never change, you you're, you're set on a path and then you're, you're just not listening to anyone anymore, that you clo- close yourself off from being shaped by other people. But this is a wrong view of steadfastness. The reality is that the world is changing around us. We are standing still if we're steadfast and adapting to that change as the world changes. I have friends I've known my whole life and... Um, they are, I guess, steadfast friendships because we've stuck together. But the, the nature of the friendship has changed. When we're young, we, we're doing imaginative play pretending to be Star Wars characters. And then if, when we're a bit older, we're riding our bikes around on a Saturday. And then when we're a bit older, we're talking about girls and who we want to date. And then when we're a bit older, we um, get married or, or, or choose our uni degree or... Or then we get a bit older, and then we move into different parts of Australia, and then our, our relationship is tested. And then as we get older, we face different trials, and you, you adapt and you change in your steadfast relationship, in your friendship. Part of the Christian virtue of steadfastness is to have the capacity to respond to surprise. Life doesn't have to mean giving up on God life change. When I used to do a lot of young adults ministry, I used to hate it when a young adult would suddenly get a full-time job for the first time and then they'd pull out of church. They'd be too busy for the community, too busy for ministry because they got full-time work and some would even walk away from their faith altogether. They'd learn to be active Christians when they had lots of space in their life and then when they had less time in their life, they weren't able to adjust. The fact is, your life is constantly changing. Some of you might get married. Some of you won't get married. Um, some of you will get a busier jobs and less busier jobs. Some of you will get a promotion. Some of you might even move interstate. Some of you might have health problems. Some of you might have friends or relatives who have health problems. Things change. You have to constantly change and adapt. But the steadfast Christian... Remains solid through all of that look at our passage in Luke nine verse 57 as I was walking along the road, a man said to him, i am going to follow you anywhere you go, wherever you go." And Jesus replied, "Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head." And he's saying, "If you want to follow me all, all the way, you can't rely on luxury, a life of luxury, or the thing, the physical, earthly things that give you security." like your comfortable home and possessions. It has been costly for the Son of God to become a human being. And followers of Jesus have to know that cost too. They have to be steadfast in their commitment and not rely on their luxurious living. That requires the ability to adapt and change in your steadfast commitment to following Jesus. Verse 59 says, he said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. The Jews treated the burial rites so seriously that um, this would have been shocking to hear Jesus say that. Uh, For the man to leave um, the burial rites to somebody else would have been scandalous. This duty of burial took Precedents in Jewish culture over study, over the over the law, over the the study of the law, over the temple service, over the killing of the Passover sacrifice, over the observance of circumcision. Jesus is saying that the demands of the kingdom of God are even more urgent than all of this. Jesus couldn't stand around waiting until the man got through the lengthy burial process, so he says, "Leave the dead to bury their own dead." Jesus has called the man to proclaim the kingdom of God and he's speaking with hyperbole. He's not saying, to be a Christian, you're not allowed to go to your dad's funeral. He's not saying that. He's just saying the kingdom of God needs your fullest attention. Part of adapting to the surprise that comes along in life, in the surprise of a death of a family member even, even, involves getting your priorities right. Don't don't let the all-consuming cultural practices of your culture stop you from following me. There is an urgency about the Christian life. We need to be active now. Verse 61 says, Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the service of the kingdom of God. Again, more hyperbole, hyperbole. Sorry, I get my syllables wrong. This seems not unreasonable to say goodbye to your family, but Jesus is saying you're going to be likely to give up or to have a second you know, thought. Just look forward. And this is what my dad said to me in my 21st birthday speech. He said, you know, whatever happens, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And at the time I was like, yeah, of course I'll always be a Christian. Well, I've lived two two 21 years now. I'm 42. And I know what he means. As you get older, just staying a Christian and not being distracted with life is, is difficult. And I've made my life about being fully engaged as much as I can in my following of Jesus. And this is what I want to keep doing for the next 21 years and the 21 years after that, God willing. And finally, to conclude, the amazing thing about steadfastness is that it's strengthened by suffering. Jesus' brother James writes in, in James 1 verse 3, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And he goes on to say, Look at Job. How amazing is Job what he faced in his suffering, and yet he was steadfast and blessed by God. Paul wrote, writes in Romans five three, which we're going to look at in a few weeks, that we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, where endurance is the same word as steadfast. So we are blessed when we suffer because it produces steadfastness in us and changes us on the inside. To be more like jesus when we see jesus steadfastness in the passage we read today in verse 51 from luke it says as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven for him to go to the cross jesus resolutely set out for jerusalem he 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 was unwavering in his commitment to die for the sins of the world and to be obedient to god and there were messengers ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him, but the people there did not welcome him. They were not welcoming, and this focus on his mission to the cross was not easy for Jesus because he didn't get any help from anybody else. He was not welcomed as the Messiah in the Samaritan village, and his disciples tried to make dumb decisions. Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? And this is where the disciples look like rednecks, Let's use shock and awe on the Samaritan village for not welcoming Jesus. Fire from heaven! To which Jesus called them a pack of bogans. So for those of you who are here today, who are experiencing suffering, significant suffering, perhaps it's your physical health or your mental health or your life circumstances, events that have occurred in your life, what you can do now is you can hope for what you do not see, and wait with patience, as Paul says in Romans 8.25. Later on in Romans, Paul says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance, through steadfastness, and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Our steadfastness requires a complete focus on God's word, has the capacity to respond to change, and is strengthened by suffering. Lamentations chapter 3.22 famously says that in the context of suffering and difficulties of life that we face, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And this is where I close my thoughts our thoughts on steadfastness. We should be steadfast because God is steadfast to us. He is the God of covenantal love, who loves his children throughout time, even when they turn their back on him. We can't compare anything else to the God of steadfast love, to Jesus, who was steadfast in his love for his people, his mission as the Messiah. And towards the end of his life, when his friends abandoned him, people rejected him, and he cried out in anguish for there to be another way in the Garden of Gethsemane. There was none, so he steadfastly died for you and for me. And this is how much he loved you. So, as Paul writes, May the Lord redirect your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord God, thank you so much that you are the steadfast God. We thank you for all those in our life, lives who are steadfast towards us, who, who grow, have that virtue of steadfastness. And we pray that we can be growing in steadfastness, that we can resist our, our culture's preference for choice, that we cannot be flaky people, but that we will be there for each other in the long haul.
0: Amen.